beautiful song. The, the, the lyrics are amazing in that, and I, I think at some point we may be incorporating that into our songs that we sing, but let me just remind you of the last verse that she's saying there. Unto the grave, what shall we sing? You heard it, right? Christ, he lives. Christ, he lives. And what reward will heaven bring? What do we get because Christ lives? Everlasting life with him. Not just everlasting life, because if that were without Christ, it would kind of be meaningless. But everlasting life with our Savior, Jesus Christ. No wonder the chorus says, Oh, sing, hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Hallelujah. What a great God we have who planned for our redemption when there was nothing else that could bring us hope. Our hope came in Jesus Christ. Well, this morning we are going to get back or continue our series in great sermons from the book of Acts. And you know what makes for a great sermon? When people are called to live obediently to the commands of Christ. When an individual is challenged to live as God would have them live and to live in a way that honors our Savior who lived and died and rose again. So this morning as we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 8, please take your copy of the scriptures and meet me there if you have a copy with you. Uh, Acts chapter 8, you may be very familiar with this passage of scripture. Um, It's just a continuation of what God is doing as he builds his church. You'll You'll remember that Jesus promised that he was going to build his church, right? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. When Jesus says he's going to do something, you know what? It happens. It happens. And so this book of Acts is all about Jesus starting the building process of his church. We are transitioning from the Jewish era, the Jewish scriptures, into the Christian era, to the church, uh, as we call it, as Jesus called it, in fact. And so we see these great sermons are calling people to Christ. They're calling people to a a relationship with the Father through the Son, calling people to repentance. Last week, as we uh, were in Acts chapter 7, we looked at the great sermon that One of the first deacons preached, okay? Um, Deacon Stephen preached a stirring message. And he brought the people who were there uh, listening to him preach. And many of them came to judge him and to uh, eventually put his life to an end. Uh, But Stephen preached this message that talked about the history of the Old Testament, the history of the Jewish people that God called from nothing, called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees, made him a great nation, the nation of God's choice, the people that he was building a relationship with, entered into a covenant with, those people who were his representation in the world at the time, though that nation which rejected him as their Messiah. Stephen preached a message to those people, and it was such a convicting message that some heard it and repented, and others heard it, and the Bible says they were cut to the quick, and they put him to death. What a message. I'm glad that I've not had to preach a message to that degree before where it ended up in my death. But if that would be God's will, who would I be to say no? We have no right to do that. Stephen didn't think when he started preaching that message that he was going to be put to death at the end of that message. Remember we said that he was a rising star in the church. He was, a, he was going to be a, a, a great preacher of the word of God. He was going to be used by God, at least we would think, to bring many to himself. And he only got to preach one message. But in that one message, many came to know Jesus as their Savior. So um, as, we, as we saw this deacon preach and, and, and bring a message of conviction to those who are hearing it, um, we want to be mindful of the fact that the messages that we preach must come from the Word of God. And they must bring conviction, not because Pastor Tim said so, but because the Lord said so. They come from the pages of his book, not just from my lips. That reminds us of the importance of the, the very 
word preaching. We don't preach our thoughts, our opinions, our ideas. We preach the word of God. And that word preaching, it's the same word that we use over in 1 John 1, 9, where it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. It's that Greek word, homologeo, and it means to say the same thing. So a preacher, when he stands up here and he says, take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 8, he better be preaching from Acts chapter 8. He better be preaching from the word of God. Not from something else that he's uh, drawn up in his own wisdom and in his own mind. We must preach the word of God. There's something that we see in Acts chapter 8. We see the expansion of the church. Up to this point, the preaching that has taken place was done in and around Jerusalem. And it was done primarily to Jewish people. But God is now... um, causing the church to grow, to move out beyond the realms of just Jerusalem. And it's interesting how he does that. Uh, He does that by persecution. So you see the title of our sermon this morning is that persecution prompts preaching. Persecution prompts. Now we might think that that would be the opposite. We might think that persecution kind of quiets or quells preaching. But you know what? around the world, other places that are, that are suffering under persecution, they're not quiet about the gospel. They make it known. They let it be known to all those they come in contact with that Jesus is the only solution for the problem of sin. That if you want to be rightly related to the Father, if someday you hope to go to heaven, the only way to get there is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. There is no other way. Why is that so important? Well, that's actually carrying out what Jesus commanded us in Matthew chapter 28. It's carrying out the Great Commission. And and God had to bring persecution upon the early church because they were quite content to stay in Jerusalem. They were pretty happy to stay where they were. But you remember the opening line of the Great Commission after Jesus had called his followers together and he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. He then said something to them. Now, I I often like to ask you, what is the command of the Great Commission? And it's kind of a trick question, because most of you will say, well, the command is to go. No, it's not. What do you mean it's not? Well, the the word go there, and I'm not, believe me, you know that I'm not a grammar fundy. I'm not somebody who dwells a lot and is really good at grammar. But that word go is not an action word. Okay? It's It's a participle, and it actually should be translated as you go. Or in your going. And then we find the command after that. What's the command? The command is to make disciples. So the the early followers in Jerusalem, they were not going. They were staying. And God said, you know what? You need to go. So he begins to bring perse- allow persecution to come upon the church, and that persecution scattered them from Jerusalem. It began to drive them out into different places, into different locations, to different nationalities, not just to the Jewish people anymore. Remember, the Jewish people had their chance, they had their opportunity, and when they rejected the Messiah, God said, I'm shifting gears, I'm moving my focus from the Jews to the Gentiles. And we all say... Thank you, Lord. Okay? Because most of us are not Jews. Most of us are Gentiles. So, well, I'm not a Gentile. My history is Italian. Or my history is, yes, you're a Gentile. You see, there's only two groups of people as far as God is concerned in the Bible. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. We fall into, most of us, into the Gentile group. And, and praise God that he is allowing us to reap the benefits of that. Remember I said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Jeremiah talks about that new covenant. We're not going to get into that because we could be here for a long time talking about that. But Jeremiah talks about that new covenant. And he says that that new covenant is between God and the Jews. We have the benefit, the privilege. We're riding the coattails, if you will, and the the benefits of the Jewish promise to them, to the covenant uh, that God gave. But when he said, go and make disciples, he wants us to understand he doesn't intend for us to stay put. He wants us to be moving out. 
You say, well, pastor, I'm pretty content here in Preble or in central New York where God has put me. And that's okay. It doesn't mean that you have to physically pack up your house and move, but it means you need to get out of your house in, in, on a daily basis, on a regular basis, and communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to others. As you go to the grocery store, as you go to work, as you go to your child's baseball, t-ball, softball, uh, trap shooting, as you go, what are you supposed to do? Make disciples. And how do we make disciples? He gave us that instruction later on in Matthew chapter 28 when he said, teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded you and remember I am with you to the end of the age. So what do we make who do we make disciples of? We make them of Jesus. We don't make disciples of Calvary Baptist Church of Preble. Shame on us if that's what we're doing, and I don't think we are. But if, if we're going out and making disciples of, of just Calvary Baptist Church, or if I'm making disciples of Pastor Tim, then shame on me. Because I have no authority to make disciples of me. I've been commanded to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And hence the importance of the ministries of the local church. I try not to, in one sense, I try not to say that this is my church, as though it's, I'm the one in authority here. It's my, I, I call the shots. Because it's not my church, it's Jesus' church. It's God's church. But it is my church in the sense that I take ownership in my church, and I believe it's a privilege for me to serve here at Calvary Baptist Church, just like it's a privilege for you to be part of this local body of believers and to minister in and through it. I also shudder when people say, well, this is my ministry, because it's not. Even though it might not be something that you operate through the auspices of Calvary Baptist Church, it's still not your ministry. And in fact, if you're only doing it all by yourself, you should be bringing it under the ministry of a local body of believers. Because we do, when we do ministry, it's God's ministry. It's Jesus' ministry. He's the one who's called us, who has equipped us to go out and do the ministry. Jesus expected the, the early followers to spread out and take the gospel message with them. They were slow in doing that. And this intense persecution is now going to force them out, uh, force them to be on the move. Let's check out how Acts chapter 8 begins. Why don't you stand together? We'll read Acts chapter 8, the first several verses of the chapter. Reminding ourselves that persecution prompts preaching. Acts chapter 8, read it together with me from the screen if you would. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. So as we see, you may be seated. As we see here, the church is expanding. The church is spreading. But how and why? Why? Because God said, I, build, I will build my church. And why? Because he let persecution come in and to drive them out of their comfort zone. God really doesn't want us to be comfortable when it comes to taking the message of the gospel to others. He wants us to be comfortable with the message as we deliver it, but he doesn't want us to be content and just say, oh, look what I have, and not go do anything with it. He wants us to be communicating that message. As we get started, we just read uh, Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. I want to make a couple of observations as we get started. Remember what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8? He gave the outline for evangelizing the world. He said there, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in, get this, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Did you get what we read in Acts chapter 8 verse 1? 
At the same time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. That's where it was going to start. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of where? Judea and Samaria. You shall be witnesses to me where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. We don't get to the uttermost parts of the world until later on in the book of Acts. But right here in Acts chapter 8, we're moving from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. We're seeing Acts chapter 1, verse 8 carried out already in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, because Jesus is allowing this persecution to drive them out into these other regions. That's the first observation I want you to know and see. I also want you to see that it took divine prompting from God to move them from Jerusalem and to get them to expand to the area that they were to take the gospel into. And this prompting came not in a, uh, not in a friendly way, not in a kind way, but in a very difficult way. It came through persecution. And you know what? Sometimes it takes hard times to get the church of God moving in the direction God wants it to move. We've been blessed here in America, haven't we? we we're a nation that's well over 200 years old. And we are pretty content with where we are. And you know, you know the state of the church is in America today? It's not good. I don't have to tell you that. You know that. You look around and you see, man, I mean, churches are floundering. Churches are not really growing. The church, in a lot of ways, looks a lot like the world. That's not what God wants. It's not the way Jesus intended it to be. The church needs to be bold. The church needs to be on fire. The church needs to be obedient to the commands of Jesus Christ. And sometimes it takes persecution to bring the church back into the right relationship that it should have with God through Jesus. I'm not asking for persecution. I'm not hoping that we get persecution. But I am saying that it it could come. Or the other option is the church just dies, ceases in certain places. I don't want that to happen here. I don't want that to happen in America. But in order for that not to be the case, we who are the representation of the church, we need to be out there talking about the church. We need to be talking about Jesus. We need to be talking about salvation so that others will know that God is alive and God is at work and God is using his followers to expand his kingdom here in this world. We also see that the gospel is now going to the Gentiles as well as the Jews. You saw that as we read through the first part of Acts chapter 1. The gospel is not now exclusively to the Jews. It's moving out into other areas. Um, it's moving out. And, 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 you know, Israel had a history a lot of the prophets that we read about, they didn't want to take the good news uh, of God in relationship to man to other nations around them. But you know, that's why God called the nation of Israel into existence. He wanted the nation of Israel to represent him to the nations around them. Instead, though, many, many times they sucked that in and kept it to themselves. Remember Jonah? He was a prophet, right? And God says, I want you to go where? I want you to go to Nineveh. What do I want you to do? I want you to preach repentance to the people of Nineveh. And what did Jonah do? He went the opposite way. And God says, you're supposed to go to Nineveh. And, and at the end, Jonah says, I knew that if I went to Nineveh and preached repentance, that those people, and by the way, the Jews didn't like the Ninevites, the Assyrians, they didn't like them. They wanted to get rid of them. They wanted to, to have nothing to do with them. They hated them. I knew, Jonah said, if I went to Nineveh and preached about you and repentance and grace and forgiveness and that they, they repented, you would forgive because that's the kind of God you are. Aren't you glad? By the time Jonah gets to the end of the book, he's glad that God is a forgiving God and lets us repent. But he didn't want that for the Ninevites. Nahum is about Assyria. Habakkuk is not about the Jewish people. It's about God using a foreign power to come in and judge the nation of Israel. Oh, we don't want that. Habakkuk couldn't understand it. God, what are you doing? Those people are worse than we are. 
Well, but if you guys get right with me, you can be a testimony to them, and they might get right with me. Oh, no. Why would we want that? Because that's what we're supposed to do. Even our greatest enemies should have the opportunity to hear the gospel, even from us, if God should allow that. We shouldn't hold back and say, I don't like them. I don't want them to, to hear the Yes, we want them to hear the truth. You don't want anybody, or you shouldn't want anybody to spend eternity in hell separated from God. And that's what's at stake with the gospel message. We take that to others. The gospel is now going to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. We also see that the first preacher to the Gentiles, you would think that this would be somebody of high caliber, you know, somebody high ranking in the church, right? It's not. It's a deacon. No offense to the deacons, but you know what the deacons are supposed to do, right? By virtue of their name, what do deacons do? They serve. They're they're servants. What better way to serve, though, than to take the gospel to somebody else? And so this first preacher to the Gentiles is a guy by the name of Philip. We see that in verse 5. And Philip is preaching to all people, of all the people God would send him to. He's preaching to the Samaritans. Really, God? The Samaritans? You know what the Jews thought about the Samaritans? They thought that the Samaritans, they detested them. They thought that the Samaritans were on the same level as a dog. Now you might think, well, that's a pretty good level. My dog has a pretty good life. He sits on the couch all day long and he gets fed two, two, two meals a day. He doesn't have to do anything. Um, he, he can, you know, he just lays around there and just, uh, unless I call, go in and say, hey, Jaunty, and he gets all startled and he wakes up. I look at him and say, you're lazy. He has, a, he has nothing to do. He has no response. That's not the way dogs were in the, in the Bible times. Dogs were hated. Dogs were not pets. They were despised. They didn't want any, people didn't want dogs around them. They were dangerous. They were wild animals. That's the way the Jews looked at the Samaritans. They thought that they were half-breeds. They thought that they were, uh, they were always looked down upon by those who were of pure Jewish descent. There's a pertinent comment made in the Nelson Study Bible that says this, The gospel message transcended the first century barrier between the Jews and Samaritans. The Spirit of God created a loving fellowship of believers out of the hate that existed. The formation of the Samaritan church indicates that there is no room for racism in the church. For Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Now, when we first went to South Africa as missionaries, we were going to work with a white church. Because we were just coming out of the apartheid years when we went to South Africa. But you know what? God had other plans. We didn't work with just a white church. Before we knew it, we had whites and we had coloreds in our church. You know, pastor, don't be racist. That's what they were called, okay? Uh, a colored is exactly like a Samaritan, a half, half white, half black, okay? And by virtue of apartheid, apartheid said if you're white, you marry white. If you're black, you marry black. And because before apartheid came into existence in the, in the, in the 1950s, uh, there was no problem with intermarrying. But when apartheid became law of the land, apartheid said if you're white, you marry white. If you're black, you marry black. And now that there's this mixed group of people, we're going to call them coloreds. And if you're colored, you must marry somebody who's colored. That's what the law said. So... We had white people in our church. We had colored people in our church. We, we had colored deacons. <gasps> yes. And they did a great job. And there was great love in our church family between one another. And then as our church began to grow, we began to have um, black people come and be part of our church. Not just black South Africans, but people from other parts of Africa would come and they would visit our church and they would become part of our church. And we had Indian people in our church. Not the ones that live on reservations, but the people that came from India. South Africa has a huge Indian population, so we had people from that were black and white and colored and Indian. We had lots of different countries represented in our church. A very multicultural, uh, it was kind of like a microcosm of, of, a, of a melting pot. 
I was telling somebody not too long ago, on Wednesday nights, you could walk around and you could hear somebody praying in Afrikaans. You could hear somebody praying in English. You could hear somebody praying uh, in French. Lots of different languages, Zulu, uh, Tswana, all kinds of people were praying in just whatever language is comfortable to them. I didn't understand it, but so what? God heard it, and what a blessing it was. You see, there is no place for racism in the church of Jesus Christ. We think about race, and you know what? In the world today, it's always been the same since God created mankind. There's one race, and it's the human race. Yeah, there's lots of different colors, but that's okay. That's the way God intended it to be. There should not be a race issue in the church. God never intended it to be that way. And you know what? We can take it one step further. We have different groups in our country today, groups that we would philosophically disagree with. They live a different kind of a lifestyle than we live. But that doesn't mean we should look down upon them for the lifestyle they live. Rather, we should share the gospel with them and trust that God would bring them out of that lifestyle into a right relationship with him through Jesus Christ and let the Holy Spirit make the changes in their lives that need to be made. We can't minister to them if we're judging them. We have to say sin is sin and wrong is wrong, but we don't have to condemn them for the life that they're living. That's not our place, that's God's place. And so as we... Go, and we're, as we're going, we're finding more and more people that have a different philosophical, religious bent than we have. We still need to communicate the good news with them because that's the only thing that can change them from the inside out. It's the only thing that makes a difference. Remember, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Not just the ones that I'm comfortable with and want them to represent our church. I remember uh, one time in our church in South Africa, we had a, a family or a couple that were not married. And, and they started coming to church. And they kept coming to church. And somebody said to me, Pastor, what are you going to do about that? In other words, what are you going to do about the immorality that they're living in? I'm like, well, are they Christians? Well, No. I said, oh, okay, so what do you expect them to do? If they're not Christians, they can't live like Christians. How is it that you and I can live like Christians? What's the only way we can live like Christians? Because the Holy Spirit lives within us and convicts us of sin and says, hey, you need to stop doing that because it's wrong. If they don't have the Holy Spirit living within them, they don't know that it's wrong. They just keep doing it because that's life for them. So am I going to stop them from coming to church? No. I'm going to encourage them to come where they will hear the truth so they can be convicted by the truth, not by me, but by the truth, and repent and trust Jesus as their Savior. That's God's job. We want to invite people to come to church and be part of our church? Yes. There was a time when we, if you invited somebody in church who had tattoos, (gasps) no. So what? So what? It doesn't have any bearing on their spiritual condition. Bring them in. Let the Holy Spirit do the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. And you know what? Here's another thing. And I've kind of gotten away from my notes, but that's okay. Here's another thing. We don't get to pick and choose. And and you don't have to bring them into church to get them saved. You know what? That's actually your job, to share the good news with them even outside of church and see them come to know Jesus as their Savior. And then you bring them into church where they can grow in a unit, in a family, to be like Christ. We disciple them together. But the church was never meant to be a saving institution. The church is meant to be a a discipling institution. The church is meant to be an institution where we come together as a body and we grow with one another. Yes, when I preach, I will, if I know that there are people here that don't know Jesus as a Savior, I will include a gospel presentation. I feel that that's my responsibility. 
But the greater responsibility that the church has is to preach to, well, Paul says it this way, to equip the body so that you guys can go out and do the work of the ministry that God has called us to do. Well, let's move on and let's talk about this great preaching in the book of Acts. First of all, in verse 5, we see the proclamation from Philip. And this is Philip speaking, but it's not Philip's words. Like I said, when we preach, we say the same thing that the Word of God says. So we see the proclamation from Philip. And and there's a little bit of organization to Philip's preaching. I want you to know that Philip uh, knew the Word of God, and he could handle the Word of God, and he probably had studied the Word of God. So he knew what what he was saying. There's organization. First of all, we see that he proclaimed Christ to the Samaritans. He proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. And what he proclaimed about Jesus was the fact that he is the Son of God. He died on the cross, and while he was on the cross, he took your sins, he took my sins upon himself to satisfy the wrath of the Holy God who has every right to send us all to hell. He preached Jesus Christ to the Samaritans. He preached the good news about the kingdom of God. Now, Philip, what do you think you're doing? The kingdom is for the Jewish people, not the Samaritans. You know what? The kingdom is for all those who God allows us to be in the kingdom. We don't have a choice who comes into the kingdom. We know who's going to start the kingdom. but We don't have a choice to who God brings into the kingdom. God will bring in those he desires. And we see also part of his organization is that he preached the name of Jesus. How many times have we said that from these great sermons in the book of Acts so far? He preached the name of Jesus. Remember Acts 4.12, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. What is the name? It is the name of Jesus. It's the only name that can bring deliverance from the bondage of sin. So you have the organization of Philip's preaching. We also have the outcomes of Philip's preaching. You know, we live in a world today that talks a lot about outcomes-based education. What are the outcomes of Philip's preaching? In other words, what did the people that heard Philip preach take home with them? Well, we see that the multitudes were were giving attention to what Philip said. They were listening Hey, this guy's got something we need to hear, something that we need to talk about, that we need to listen to. So they were giving attention to what Philip said. And when people give attention, you know what? It begins to make them think about their own life, about what they're doing and how about how they're living life. We see that according to the scriptures, unclean spirits were coming out of the Samaritan people. Why? Because the power of God was at work through this man named Philip. We also see that many that were paralyzed and lame were healed. We pray for a lot of people here at Grace Baptist Church, at Calvary Baptist Church. We pray for a lot of people who, need, who have physical needs, who are sick or have cancer or have other needs that are going on in their body. Why do we pray for them? Well, because we know that in some cases... People need to have physical healing before they can let the spiritual healing take place. Before they'll even listen to what God wants to do in their life spiritually, they're so focused on the physical needs that they have that they can't even think about anything else. So sometimes God does a physical healing before he does a spiritual healing in someone's life. These individuals that were paralyzed, that were lame, that were uh, fighting various diseases were healed. How were they healed? They weren't healed because Philip laid hands on them. They were healed because of the power of the word of God that was being proclaimed. We see that there was much rejoicing in the city. The Samaritans were rejoicing. It was another time that the Samaritans rejoiced. Remember when uh, Jesus was at the well and the woman came and he asked her for a drink? And, and he told her all about her past and, and all of that. And then the Bible says that she went back to her city and she said, Come meet this man who's at the well. He must be the Messiah. He's told me everything I ever know. So she left and she went to her city and, and then she came back. And you know what it says? They, they were rejoicing because of the words of Jesus Christ that brought hope to their life. You see, when the gospel is preached, when great preaching takes place, there is rejoicing over the word of God. There was a great change uh, in the following within the city. 
There was a guy by the name of Simon the sorcerer. He had a great following among the people in the city. And they said, this man has the great power of God. Who was the man they were talking about? They weren't talking about Simon anymore. They were talking about Philip. Philip has the power of God. Because God was at work in and through this man, Philip. It says that they heeded him because he had astonished them and he had given them great words. Simon was a man who could speak great wonders to the people. But they weren't founded in the truth. They were just founded in all kinds of other things. And at a, at for, for up until that point, they were following Simon because he seemed to be a man who had wisdom. And then along comes Philip and he speaks the word of God. A man who has true wisdom, the wisdom of God. And they stopped following Simon and they started following the words of Philip. When they believed the preaching of Philip, they were baptized. Men and women were baptized. Adults were baptized. People who had not known Christ before, they were baptized. Didn't matter that they were Jews in the past or they were Samaritans in the past or what their religious affiliation was. When they heard the good news of Jesus Christ and they trusted the Lord as their Savior, then they got baptized. Why? Because it's called believer's baptism. You get baptized because now you are identifying with Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished to make you right before God. And even Simon himself believed and was baptized and continued following Philip. You see, Simon's behavior uh, later on in this chapter would indicate that Simon only had a head knowledge and not a heart knowledge. He believed in his head, but there was no transformational work in his heart. And so the apostles confronted him and said, hey, you have no right. What authority do you, you, do you do this? And he didn't have the authority to do that. So they rebuked him and they helped him understand that he needed a real relationship with Jesus Christ. Those are the outcomes. What about uh, some further observations, this time from people that we might say, well, these people matter. Okay? So Peter and John are now brought onto the scene. And we see some observations from them. When the apostles heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John. Hold on. Stop the press. The Samaritans might, becoming, might be becoming Christians. Can that really be the case? We better send some people who can make sure that that's what's happening. So they sent Peter and John. They wanted to be sure. Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now some wonder why this was even necessary since it doesn't happen today. I don't, when somebody gets saved, I don't pray that they would receive the Holy Spirit. As you know why? At the moment of salvation, they get the Holy Spirit. It was necessary then to authenticate the expansion of the church to the Samaritans. This was new territory. The gospel had not been brought to the Samaritans before. And every time we see that the gospel comes into new territory, we see something like this, some activity of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Ryrie says about how this happened with the Samaritans. He said, Though the Samaritans had been baptized in water, verse 12, the gift of the Holy Spirit was delayed until Peter and John came and laid their hands on them. Normally, the Spirit is given at the moment of faith or the moment of salvation. In this instance, however, it was imperative that the Samaritans be identified with the apostles and the Jerusalem church so that there would be no rival Samaritan church. They didn't want the church in Samaria and the church in, in Jerusalem being against each other, rivals with each other. They wanted to be the same, working together to further the work of Jesus Christ, to further the gospel. We also see that Simon, here's the problem with Simon, he wanted to buy the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw the Holy Spirit came upon those after Peter and John laid hands on them, he said, man, I want that power, I want that ability, let me have the power, I'll pay you for it. He thought it was a commodity. The Holy Spirit is not a commodity. Shame on anyone who thinks he is. When you get saved, my friends, you get the Holy Spirit living inside of you. And here's another thing. You get all the Holy Spirit you're ever going to get. He doesn't come and go. He's all there. You say, Pastor, you know that Ephesians 5.18 says, Be filled in the Spirit. 
Well, I know that. But really what that means is that your, your spirit needs to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. Not that you're going to go and get tanked up on the Holy Spirit. You got them all. The question is, how much of you does he have? That's the question. Ryrie says, it was important for the people to understand that the Jerusalem church and the Samaritan church were the church that Jesus was talking about when he said, I will build my church. And when he commissioned the apostles and all of us to go into all the world to preach the gospel. Peter and John looked at Simon and said, you need to repent. You need to get right. You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and this is the reason why discipleship is so important. If a person is not genuinely saved, they will be confronted with the gospel numerous times through discipleship. When, when I do somebody, discipleship with somebody or you use the materials that we use for discipleship, one of the first lessons that you do in discipleship is how you got saved. Why is that important? Because you need to know that you got saved through the blood of Jesus Christ and the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary, not through some other means. And we need to, do, we need to know that you made a, there was a time in your life where you prayed, you confessed your sins, you asked Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior. It doesn't come on the coattails of someone or something else. It's only when you ask, you confess, you repent, you trust, then are you saved. There must be a moment in your life where you know that you've confessed your sins and asked Jesus to be your personal Savior. People that are not truly saved, when confronted with that message over and over and over and over again, you know what? They're going to get tired of hearing it and they're going to walk away. They don't want it. And so we continue to preach the truth. According to church history, this was the case with Simon. He was considered an enemy of the faith and associated with various heresies after the confrontation of Peter and John. He walked away and never came back. When he was, rebu when he was rebuked by Peter, he asked Peter to pray for him rather than praying to God himself. Why is that important? Because he could have prayed to God and confessed his sins and gotten right with God, but he said to Peter, you pray for me, because he didn't have that personal relationship with God like he knew Peter did. People will often say to me, hey, can you pray for this? Can you pray for that? Can you pray for me? I said, I can, and I will, but you can too if you know Jesus as your Savior. We had a guy in our church, he says, you, you have special connection with the guy upstairs. No, Ray, I don't. I don't, have any more, I don't have any better connection with him than you can. You can know him and you can talk with him just as much as I can. Ray's not with him, by the way. You see, any child of God has the right to pray to God and God will hear them. Simon says, no, 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 you pray, you pray. This started a common practice in religion, that of praying the, through a man rather than going directly to God through the Son. We don't have mediators here at Calvary Baptist Church. We don't need them. The Bible says there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. If I know Jesus as my Savior, he's my mediator. I pray, that's why we pray in Jesus' name. I pray in his name, he takes my requests right into the very presence of God in the throne room, and God deals with them. Peter and John went back to Jerusalem. They testified about the work of the Lord and how people came to God through Christ. Samaritans! They went back to Jerusalem and said, hey, there's Samaritans that are getting saved. There are Samaritans trusting Christ as their Savior. Not only were people coming to Christ, but the great chasm between the two different races were being bridged because as people were reconciled to God, the possibility of being reconciled to each other becomes greater. We had no schisms in our church in South Africa between whites and coloreds, or whites and blacks, or Indians and coloreds. There was no, everybody got along, everybody loved one another, we were in each other's homes, we were ministering to one another. There were no schisms. You see, the gospel breaks down those kinds of barriers. We don't really have to worry about those barriers. 
Because when the gospel is received by an individual, the Holy Spirit begins to break down those barriers. The Holy Spirit makes the changes that only the Holy Spirit can make. That was the whole problem with apartheid. Apartheid tried to legislate different things, and it failed miserably. Because you can't legislate those kinds of things. Just like you can't legislate morality. A moral choice has to be governed by the Holy Spirit at work in an individual's life. We see that the gospel was preached in many villages of the Samaritans. And as Peter and John and Philip made their way back to Jerusalem, they stopped off along in different towns and cities and preached the gospel. Praise God. Those barriers were being broken down. Let's quickly finish this up with personal evangelism in Gaza, verses 26 through 40. Gaza is the next place that the Holy Spirit sent Philip. We'll see the importance here of being obedient to the directing of the Holy Spirit in your life. The angel of the Lord told Philip to go to the Gaza road. Now, Why would Philip want to go to the Gaza Road? He had no intention, he had no desire, he really had no need to go to the Gaza Strip for any reason at all. But notice Philip's response. And he arose and went. When God says go, what should our response be? We should move in the direction God commands us to go. Because of obedience, he met the Ethiopian eunuch. And it was used greatly of the Lord. Now you might, be remo- you might be wondering just how the Spirit led in Philip's evangelism. Okay, listen, here we go. We got five things real quickly, or four things that we're going to look at. We see the Spirit's instruction. The Spirit told Philip to go and join his chariot or to engage him in conversation. Again, notice Philip's action. The Bible simply says, so Philip ran to him. He couldn't get there quick enough. It was the quickest way he could get there. He ran to him. He was eager to be obedient. And and, and that's something that God wants from each one of us. He wants us to be eager in obeying him. He he loves it when you and I obey quickly. We can identify that with that, right? I mean, when we tell our children to do something, we don't want to tell them three or four times. In fact, you shouldn't. You should really, you know, this whole count to three thing. It doesn't really work. It's really not obedience. It's actually letting them get away with not being obedient for a longer period of time. When you tell your children to do something, you should expect what? Obedience the first time. Not three strikes in your hour. I'm not playing baseball. When God says, obey, we should obey. When you as a parent say, do this, your child should do it. Oh, but pastor, we live in a different age. I don't care if we live in a different age. That's why the age is different. Because we've not been obedient over time. We've let that slide. Stephen, or Philip obeyed immediately. He ran, kind of like David and Goliath. Remember when they had the confrontation in the, in, the, in, the, in, in the wilderness? Goliath comes out and he starts making fun of David. And what does the Bible say David did? He ran towards Goliath with his sling and his stone, and he put the sling in and he hit, the, he hit Goliath in the head and killed him. He was eager to obey. As Christians, we should be eager to obey. We also see here the Spirit's initiation. The eunuch was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, that was not just some chance that he was reading the book of Isaiah. He wouldn't have probably chosen that book to read because the book of Isaiah is all about the Messiah, okay? All about the the, the coming of the the Savior of mankind. So the Spirit is moving already in the Ethiopian's life, helping him to see, helping him to understand, helping him to, to, to bring him to a point where the Word of God, when it's explained, can bear fruit in his life. That's why we pray for people that aren't saved. So that the Holy Spirit will begin to work in their lives and then when God brings them across our path, we have the opportunity to respond with the word of God. God doesn't work in coincidence. He doesn't work in chances. The Ethiopian eunuch was reading the book of Isaiah because the Holy Spirit had prompted him to do that. Our God is the sovereign one and works all things after the counsel of his will. Paul explains it this way, how a person comes to know Jesus as their Savior and the build-up to it. 
in him, that's in Jesus, over in Ephesians, Paul writes this, we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. My friends, listen to me. You and I cannot bring a person to Christ in our own strength, no matter how hard we try. But God, through his Holy Spirit, is at work in the lives of people all around us. We don't know it. We just need to be obedient. And when we begin to communicate the gospel further, the work of the Holy Spirit brings them to repentance and faith and trust in Jesus Christ. How beautiful are the feet of those who spread the gospel of peace, Paul says in the book of Romans. He doesn't tell us we have to do all the prep work. We just need to speak the gospel of peace to those he brings across our path. The eunuch asked Philip who this passage was referring to. Is this about the prophet Isaiah or is this about someone else? He wasn't sure. He didn't have the religious background that some of the Jews might have had. And so we have next the Spirit's impression. The Spirit was at work, and when the Spirit works, what do we do? It's best for us just to submit to his leading. And that's what Philip did. It says here, Philip opened his mouth and began at the beginning at the scriptures and preached Jesus to him. I've said this to you before. It doesn't matter how much of the Bible you know. Now, that's not an excuse. But you just need to trust the Lord to give you the words to say when the time comes. You just need to be willing to open your mouth and speak. I know there's people can testify to that in this room today who are willing to simply speak when the Holy Spirit prompts. I've told you before, there's times when I speak to somebody and I look back and I say, where did that come from? Because I wouldn't have come up with it in my own mind, in my own wisdom. I look back and I say, that, that was God. That was all of God. I, I kind of manuscript my sermons. That whole opening part, that wasn't what I had written down. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is at work. That doesn't make me somebody super special. This makes me somebody who's willing to speak and let God use what he's prompted me to say. We have to follow the Spirit's impression in our life. And as the Spirit impresses himself upon others, we need to be willing to speak. He speaks from Isaiah. What a great place to start. It's a powerful text from the Jewish scriptures. It clearly communicates the gospel and the coming of the suffering servant to redeem mankind. There was no doubt that the eunuch had read at least from the beginning of the chapter in chapter 53. And you know what that chapter is all about? All we like sheep who have gone astray, we have led everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid upon him. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the Messiah. Now, time does not allow, we're already past time, but time does not allow us to break down this passage of Scripture for you. But let me give you a brief summary. Simply this, since the eunuch was reading this passage of Scripture, it gave Philip the desired opportunity to tell how these Scriptures were perfectly fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. No doubt, while he was in Jerusalem, the Ethiopian had heard reports about a man named Jesus. It was all over the place. But these reports would, of course, they would cast Jesus in an unfavorable light, a la our our modern-day media. They never paint Jesus in the right light. They never paint Christianity the way it's intended to be painted. Neither Neither was that true in those days. The eunuch now, as Philip opens his mouth and begins to speak truth, the eunuch learns that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the suffering servant of Jehovah the, guy, the, the God who Isaiah wrote about. When you and I have the opportunity to speak in the lives of others, we speak truth. We speak the word of God. And we let the word of God do what only the word of God can do. Philip must have included some teaching about baptism because as they drive down the road, what's the first thing the eunuch says? Here's water. Let me be baptized. I, I want to get baptized. He wasn't holding back. He wasn't reserving. He wasn't saying, blah, 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 blah. I want to get baptized. Okay, you see, 
Baptism is so important in the life of the child of God. You're, not, you're here this morning, you've not been baptized, I'll say it again. You said, Pastor, you're harping on it. I am. If you're here and you're not baptized, you need to get baptized. Pastor, why is it so important? Because it signifies your willingness to be obedient to Jesus Christ. Pastor friend of mine in South Africa told me, in fact, he was the guy we started Grace Baptist Church with. He told me, he says, Tim, he says, I put off baptism for a long time. He was an ex-Marine or ex-Navy guy. Why would he put off baptism? He was, I mean, sailors, come on, they ought to love the water, right? He put off baptism for a long time. And then he says, Tim, I finally got baptized. And it was like God began opening incredible doors for me to be faithful and serve him because I was willing to say in front of everybody, I want to be obedient. You want to be obedient? Then get baptized. And then let God begin to use you in amazing ways that you probably don't even think about at this point in time. Here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Look at the answer. He said, you must make sure that you... Does he say this? You must make sure that your life is perfect and everything is in order and you have a great knowledge of the Bible. Does he say that? No. That's not what he says. He says, if you believe with all your heart, you may be baptized. You see, baptism is not for those who are perfect. It's simply for those who want to be obedient. It's not for those who are old enough. It's for those who know Jesus as their Savior and want to be obedient to the call of God in their life. And they want to have the opportunity to share all that God has done for them. He obeyed. The eunuch obeyed. And guess what the scripture says? The scripture took Philip, caught him away after having accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish in that man's life. And then lastly, we see that the spirit increases the church. Philip was caught up. Just whoof, gone. And then the Spirit places him down someplace else. Does that happen today? No. Uh, the closest thing we got is airplanes. We get on an airplane in New York and get off an airplane in South Africa and begin to do what God called us to do. And other, our missionaries all around the world are doing the same thing. They get on an airplane, they go, and they land where God wants them to go, and they get involved in serving him there. The Holy Spirit caught Philip up from the Gaza Road and transplanted him someplace else. But you notice what it is that he did, Philip does when he gets his feet underneath him? He begins to do what? Preach. Why? Because that's what God called him to do. Preach. He preached. He continued to help people understand the truth of Jesus Christ. Again, I refer you to the words of Jesus when he says, I will build my church. What a privilege it is for you and I to be part of the building project. Philip was part of the building project. If we follow the Spirit's leading, we will be able to be part of that project that Jesus is building right here in central New York. Now you might be thinking, well, Pastor, you didn't really preach that much this morning. You just told us a story about Philip. Well, that's the key. We need to speak truth. This story about Philip is the truth of Jesus Christ. I worked at it late last night to get the A, B, C, D a part of, verse, of, 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 of point number two. I didn't originally have it that way. It doesn't have to have three points in a poem and all kinds of good illustrations to be preaching. It simply means to be taking this word, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and giving it to others. You don't even have to be standing behind a pulpit to do it. And you don't have to have people sitting in a congregation to do it. For Philip, it was one person. He was preaching truth to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch heard it. He confessed. He repented. He trusted the Lord as his Savior. He became obedient by being baptized. And then church tradition tells us that this man, Philip, went back to Ethiopia. I mean, the eunuch went back to Ethiopia. And God used him to start a church in Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, and it became it became it became it became a thriving church because he was obedient and he answered the call of God in his life. What's God calling you to do today? Are you willing to be obedient and to answer that call that God has placed upon your heart? Is God tickling you and saying, "Hey, you need to go. You need to move. You need to do this. You need to be here. You need to be sharing the good news at work. You need to uh, tell your mother, or your son, or your daughter. You need to you need to communicate the good news to these people. And if we're willing to be obedient and leave the outcome to God, great things can happen. 
as God, as Jesus continues to build his church. Father, we come before you tonight and this morning, and we thank you so much for the privilege of communicating your word. And Father, Philip did that well to the Ethiopian eunuch. He preached to one man. This morning, your word has gone forth, and we ask that as Philip was obedient, as the Ethiopian eunuch was obedient, that we too will be obedient to the call of God in our lives, that we will simply do what God has asked us to do and preach the good news. And as we hear the good news, as we hear the truth, may we be willing to respond to that truth and do what you've asked us to do. Father, thank you again for the privilege of communicating truth to your people this morning. Help each one of us as we leave here this morning to be committed to doing what you've asked us to do, to communicate the truth, the message of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.